0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. And it reads as follows. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united in Jesus Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who beloved, who belonged to his dear Son. Shall we just bow as we ask God's presence with us now? Father, we thank you for giving us the desire to come together to worship you and to praise you this morning. And most of all, Lord, we thank you that you chose us, even before we were created, to be close to you because you love us so much. Be with us now. Help us to grasp what you have done for us and how much you love us. I pray this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now, nineteen—sorry, uh, 2014 was a very uh, auspicious year for so many people, um, and we will have been out of the country or out of this universe, I think, if you haven't picked up the fact that it's the 100th anniversary of the First World War starting. But there was another, there's another anniversary that um, it also celebrates, and I haven't heard it mentioned once on the news or read it in the papers. And it was, it's the 100th anniversary in uh, 2014 of Sir Ernest Shackleton's expedition to the South Pole. he was a polar explorer and he took part in three different expeditions to the Antarctic his first experience was as the third officer with Captain Scott in 1901 to 1904 he went again in 1907 to 1909 and he he and three others got within 112 miles of the South Pole didn't quite make it Then in 1911, Roel Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, got to the pole. So you might think there was not much else to do in terms of polar exploration. But Ernest Shackleton turned his attention to trying to cross the Antarctic via the pole from one side to the other side. And so in December 1914, he set sail from South Georgia in the South Atlantic. But in January 1915, a hundred years ago, just over a hundred years ago, his ship became trapped in the ice and it was slowly crushed. By October 1915, the ship began to sink. And for the next six or seven months, the crew camped on the sea ice. Now, some people don't like camping, but camping on sea ice doesn't seem to be even attractive to those who do like camping. But they camped on the sea ice for six to seven months. And in April 1916, the ice flow began to break up. So on the 24th of April 1916, they launched one of the lifeboats that they'd rescued from their ship. And they'd managed to transfer a lot of the supplies from the ship to the um, ice floe. So they had supplies. But they launched this boat, and they were at sea for five days. And they finally reached Elephant Island, which was the nearest um, solid land. And they had been, they had, it was the first time they'd stood on solid ground for nearly 500 days but they weren't safe yet because Elephant Island was far from the shipping routes. So Shackleton decided to risk an open boat journey to South Georgia to try and get to the whaling stations that were on the island. Now it was 720 miles away which is far enough to sail in a small boat let alone in the South Atlantic So he chose five men to go with him on the journey. They packed supplies for four weeks into the boat, knowing that if they didn't reach South Georgia in four weeks, they would be lost. They wouldn't make it at all. So, 24th of April 1916, they launched the 20 foot boat and spent 15 days at sea. And I was trying to think this morning, a 20-foot boat is probably from about here to that wall. But they were on the unoccupied southern shore of South Georgia when they got there. They did get to South Georgia. But South Georgia is an island with a very... um, ...high ridge of mountains running the full length... ...and they were on the opposite side of the island... ...to where the whaling stations were... ...where rescue could be. So after they'd rested... Um, ...Shackleton and two of the men... ...decided rather than risk sailing round the island... ...because it was so rough... ...that they would cross this mountain ridge. And it took them 36 hours to cross this uh, mountain... ...to get to the whaling station... And they finally got there in May 1916. And interestingly, I read that the island wasn't crossed again until the 1950s. They were desperate. So they sent a boat from the whaling station round the other side of the island to rescue the men who had been left on the south side. Then they had to plan the attempt to rescue the men from Elephant Island. And I won't go into the detail because there was all sorts of problems in terms of getting boats and trying to get there. And they tried three times to get to Elephant Island to rescue the men that had been left there. And finally, on, in August 1916, uh, four or five months after they'd left, they reached Elephant Island, at which point the isolated men had been there for four and a half months, and they were virtually running out of supplies. They were into their last cans of food. But they were finally rescued from Elephant Island. Now, just think how you would have felt uh, in the April when Shackleton had disappeared And they probably thought, well, it's going to take so long to get there, maybe four weeks, and then maybe four weeks to get back to us, two months at at the outside. And this was four and a half months after. They probably felt completely abandoned. Um, They were running out of food, and they were probably looking starvation in the face. They didn't ever know if they'd get off the island. They felt totally abandoned. What do you think it means to be abandoned? I looked it up in the dictionary and it says to desert or leave, to give up completely. And I think they must have been nearly at the point of giving up completely, thinking, well, this is the end of it now. They knew the story of Captain Scott, how he'd not survived and they probably thought the same fate is going to affect us. I'd like to pose a question to you this morning. Have you ever been abandoned? Maybe not in the same way that they were, but have you ever turned up in a strange country or a strange city and expected to be met by somebody and they're not there? You don't know where you're going, because somebody was going to pick you up and take you. And you can feel very abandoned and and helpless in that situation. you can feel so alone in that situation that you can't see a way forward sometimes. And we've seen on the television uh, in the past months children who have been abandoned in West Africa because of the Ebola crisis, where even though they might have extended family, maybe their parents have died, but because the, the extended family is afraid that they're going to bring the disease into the family, they don't want anything to do with them. They abandon them. And when I was doing some research for this, um, I came across, oh, if if we go back a few hundred years, people used to abandon children um, at churches and at homes um, because they couldn't afford to bring them up, and there was even a foundling hospital um, founded in 1741 in London to take children in like that who were just left on the doorstep and I came across and it's rather sad there's, there's um, in Czechoslovakia there are still places where they have what they call baby boxes in churches and orphanages where people can leave children so people even today are being abandoned What about being abandoned by God? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Does God abandon us? Well, I think there are lots of texts in the Bible, but I think that we need to realize that God doesn't abandon us. He never abandons us. And if you want to look in your Bible, there are a few texts I'm going to look at this morning. Um, in Deuteronomy four thirty one it says, The Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made. And in uh, again, further on in Deuteronomy thirty one six it says, Don't be afraid and do not panic, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will neither fail you nor abandon you. In Joshua we read no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you nor abandon you. And in John 14, 16 it says I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. No I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. And one of my favorite passages, and it was read in Sabbath school this morning, is in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 and 11, where it says, and this is in a modern paraphrase, it says, this is God's word. As soon as Babylon's 70 years are up and not a day before, I will show up, this is God speaking, I will show up and take care of you as I promised, and bring you back home. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. And if you read a little bit earlier in the text before that, it actually says that God took them into Babylon. So they were there because God took them there but he says, I won't abandon you. Now, there are texts where um, it says God abandoned them, but almost exclusively, it say, when it says that about God abandoning the people, it's because they abandoned him first. In Numbers 14, 43, we read, when you face the Amalekites and Canaanites in battle, you will be slaughtered. The Lord will abandon you because you have abandoned the Lord. And in 2 Chronicles 24, it talks about the Spirit of God come on Zechariah. And he stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands and keep yourselves from prospering? You have abandoned the Lord and now he has abandoned you. What happens when children are abandoned? We talked about that a few moments ago. Well, if children are abandoned, there are a number of options that happen. One is they can go to an orphanage. They can be fostered. Or they can be adopted. And I think the best option should be adoption. So, if you feel abandoned, don't blame God. As David said in the beginning, um, I was going to talk about adoption, abandonment, and adoption. I think we've talked enough about being abandoned. Let's think about being adopted. Um, I'm going to ask the question, and if you don't want to answer, don't answer. But has anyone here been adopted? Is anyone adopted? Okay, Marcy. What does it mean to be adopted by God? He adopts you, but is this the second best option to being born into the family? If you look up in the dictionary, it says adopted means to take someone else's child as your own to choose. Can you think of some Bible examples of of adoption, or what we would class as adoption? Moses, Moses. okay, that's one. Pharaoh's daughter adopted Moses. In Acts seven, or oh, in Exodus two ten and Acts seven, um, it says, "When the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him." as her own son. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Can you think of another adoption? A woman this time. Uh, Esther. Esther. In Esther 2, 7 and 15, we read, when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. And in Romans 8, we read that we are adopted. It says, So you, are not, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we can call him Abba Father. We too wait for an eager, with eager hope for the day when God will give us all our full rights as his adopted children. Including the new bodies he has promised us. And in our scripture reading, we read God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. This tells us God has a plan for us. This was God's plan. And Paul uses the illustration of adoption more than once um, as to what God has done for us. In, in, we've taught, we mentioned the text in Romans, and in Galatians he says, God sent a, him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. God adopted us into his family as his children. But does that make us inferior to his own son? Well, in Paul's time, the picture of adoption probably meant even more than it means to us today. Because under Roman law, which was ubiquitous when Paul was um, alive, the family was based on the father's power. A father had absolute power over his children as long as he lived, and they lived. He could even sell them as slaves, imprison them, or even have them killed. And that right didn't um, cease when they became grown up. It was still there when the son grew up into a man, and it didn't matter how powerful a job or role the son had or what responsibility he had he was absolutely in his father's power. Under Roman law children couldn't possess anything and any inheritance any gifts given to them were technically the property of the father. Sometimes children were adopted to keep the family line going so that he didn't die out and the ritual of adoption was very impressive it was carried out in a very symbolic way and it was like a symbolic sale twice the biological father sold his son and twice he symbolically bought the son back but finally he sold him a third time and at the third time he could not buy him back After this, the adopting father had to go before a senior Roman magistrate and plead the case for adoption, and only then was adoption complete. The person who was adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family, and he lost completely, absolutely, all the rights or all the responsibilities of his old family. In the eyes of the Roman law, he was a new person. So new that he even, even all his debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished, as if they'd never existed. When you think of it like that, that is what Paul is saying that God has done for us. We were absolutely in the power of sin and of the world, but God, through Jesus, took us out of the power uh, into his, um, and that adoption wipes out the past completely and makes us new. Paul goes on further to make the point that in the Ephesians passage you read that we are chosen by God. Even before he made the world, God lifted us, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault, blameless in his eyes. Paul talks about the fact of God's choice. God chose us, we didn't choose him. He talks about the generosity of God's choice. God chose to bless us. People can acquire skills, reach positions, amass material things by their own means. But by themselves, they can never achieve goodness or peace of mind. God chose us to give us those things which he alone can give. Paul also talks about the purpose of God's choice. God says... That we should be holy and blameless. Now that's a challenge. But holy is always has the idea of being different, something different, and separation. A temple was a special building because it was separate from the other buildings. Priests were separate, they were holy because they were separate from ordinary men and women. And the Sabbath was a holy day, it was special because it was different from all the other days. So God shows us that they, that they, God shows us that we may be different or special from other people. We should be blameless, and when you think under Jewish law, an animal chosen for a sacrifice had to be perfect without any blemish. Only the best will fit to, is fit to offer to God. Being blameless means the whole person is an offering to God. It should impact every aspect of our life, our work, our pleasure, our sport, our home life, our personal relations, and make them all fit to be offered to God. So here's the challenge this morning to each of us. In the early Christian church, Christians knew They had no doubt that they were different from the world. They knew that they must be so different that the probability was that they could, the world would hate them and possibly kill them. This difference on which Christ insists is not only one which takes us out of the world, but it makes us different within the world. And it should be possible um, to identify ourselves or other Christians in the school, in the shop, in the factory, in the office, in the hospital ward, everywhere we go. The difference is that Christians should behave not like they're trying to comply with the human laws, but they're trying to comply with the law that Christ wants to plant in their heart. So whether you're a teacher, a shop worker, a factory or an office worker, a doctor or a nurse, whatever you do, people should be able to recognize the change in you when you've been fully adopted by God. It's the simple fact of the matter that it, it's the simple fact of the matter that if enough Christians became different the world would revolutionise, would be revolutionized. Society would be changed. So if you ever feel abandoned by God, even in the most difficult situations, remember that he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He has chosen you before you were born. He has adopted you. The past is gone forever. He made each one of us. And in Psalm 139 we read, God made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Before we were born, he made us and he adopted us. Matthew 18:14 says, He is not willing that any should perish. And closing text I've got is Hebrews 13, which says, Be satisfied with what you have, for God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. You, me, each one of us here this morning are very special to God because he chose each one of us And he adopted each one of us into his family. And I pray this morning that that may be your experience and mine today. In Jesus' name, amen.